Greetings, everyone. I am excited to introduce Stefan Stromer, CEO and co-founder of Order Lion. Stefan, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. Awesome to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, great to have you here. So let's dive in. Tell us a little bit about your SaaS background. Yeah, so I'm currently um, running Orderline. It's a B2B SaaS company. We're in the food supply chain. That's awesome because it's the biggest uh, industry in the world. Everyone on the planet has to eat. It moves the world. And with Orderline, we are helping companies along the food supply chain, like suppliers, importers, exporters, till to the restaurant, to be more efficient, more sustainable, and scale up their operations. And that's an awesome ride to be on because we feel like we can really have a positive impact on the planet. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's a great cause, you know, and and I'm originally from Iowa, which is the Midwest of the United States. So, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of corn being grown in the Midwest in Iowa. So, you know, you're always you know, sensitive to that. That food supply chain was just great. And so your background, have you always been in SaaS? Uh, were you in different roles or, you know, is this your first SaaS, second SaaS? Tell us about that. Yeah, we were closing into SaaS. So before my co-founder, Patrick, he's CTO at Orderline. And I, we had uh, two other companies, but we were always in the IT consulting space. Okay. So what it meant is that we built like little SaaS companies but these were projects for companies and then the companies use them over time, right? So mm -hmm. you have some SaaS components in there, but you never stick with a project. You deliver it, hand it over, and then uh, the company uses it. And many of those tools are still in use today. We had lots of customers uh, already in the food supply chain, and that probably was got us into the whole ride. Yeah, that's great. So let's, yeah, let's dive into order line. This is really interesting because, right, you heard during the pandemic, all these supply chain issues, you know, more, more, you know, on the forefront, you'd hear more like manufacturing, like getting products and goods to, you know, different countries, but you didn't hear, I don't know, at least for me, didn't hear as much about the supply chain for food. So yeah, tell us what order line does. Yeah. So in practice, what it means is we specifically focus right now on the most fractured part of the market. So when you have all these players, the most complicated one is the part from supplier to restaurant. And a typical restaurant orders from like 10 different suppliers. You have a fruit and vegetable supplier close by, meat supplier, baked goods, beverage, wine, beer, what, whatnot. And they order on a daily basis. And this process for the last 50 years has not changed at all so late at night the restaurant calls up the supplier usually at 2 a.m there's nobody there anymore so they have to speak to an answering machine and when you have to do that every single day with products from maybe five 50 products per order of a catalog of sometimes 10,000 products that a supplier has it's not really the best way to do that talking to an answering machine as you have a feedback loop of 12 hours to know if that order went through and products are available. And what we are doing here is we give suppliers something like a Shopify solution tailored to that industry. So if you beverage supplier, for example, you can easily launch your own ordering apps so that 
suddenly the restaurant just pulls up his phone and he has your whole product catalog live with prices and availabilities, promotions and everything, just like when you can order from a modern supermarket and then everything is digitized. You know, you, nobody has to touch it. It all runs automatically through the system. We integrate with the supplier's ERP system where they usually have customer price data. And from there, you build on top. Like then mm -hmm. you digitize the customer service channel through some live chat components. You digitize the sales team through sales rep apps so that when they're out and about, they can access this data. In the end, we digitize the whole process and make it accessible for both sides, supplier and restaurant, and therefore help them scale up. Yeah, really interesting. I was going to ask you who your customer actually is. Was it the restaurant or supplier? But you target the supplier and sell your solution into those suppliers. Yeah, after one year of painful MVP building, we eventually arrived at the supplier side. We tested three main different models in the very beginning. The one was, yeah, we work with the supplier as a customer and they set up their own shops a little bit like Shopify. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we also tested a kind of marketplace where we sell to the restaurant and we say, hey, we have all these suppliers and all these products and we take care of it a little bit like Amazon. And then you take a commission cut. And the third one, we built like a professional procurement solution for big restaurant chains like Burger King and so on. Mm -hmm. and all of them kind of worked, but only one really felt like we can scale it up in a way that it doesn't become a project-based business. And that was the supplier side. That's yeah, and how that's we ended up. Yeah, and really interesting, right? The whole MVP building, you know, the product market fit. So as you were building the MVP, you were testing different solutions then, selling into the supplier, creating the marketplace, doing just some tests with the product just to see where you got the most traction. Yeah, and the best feedback. And the most painful part was probably that all of them produced revenue from day one, and then you have to decide to cut like eighty percent of the revenue that you have because you feel like that's a model that doesn't scale. It was pretty painful in the beginning, but in yeah. the end, I think we're happy that we did it. Now we have a model that scales up extremely efficiently. Like as a SaaS, you always want to have good margins, right? When you're scaling up and low custom acquisition costs and all these nice KPIs that you have there. So I think we are very happy that we did that back then because now these KPIs are pretty good. Interesting. And tell us about your pricing model. Is this a fixed uh, you know, monthly price, you know, traditional subscription? How do you charge your suppliers? Yeah, so my hero here is HubSpot. Probably you mentioned that name in every single call internally when we talk about pricing because they really figured it out how to do it well, how to serve a, like a nice defined customer base, get them on board and deliver value while you monetize. So we have uh, free pricing tiers from small to big targeting to different kind of companies in size from uh -huh. small to medium to enterprise. And then within these pricing tiers, you have multiple ways how you can put your product together. Uh -huh. So over time, we uh, arrived at the most comprehensive solution on the market. That's why we, nowadays we also, we used to call ourselves an ordering app and uh -huh. now it's an e-commerce operating system. 
So that should highlight that there's a little bit more in there now. And so therefore, just like HubSpot, then you have add-ons, some of them fixed price, some of them usage-based, mm -hmm. and all of that adds up to a rather comprehensive solution. Okay, great. So yeah, the small, medium enterprise modeled after HubSpot. And then what year did you found OrderLion? Uh, we started uh, all the way back in 2018. So okay. yeah, about the first two years was MVP phase, I would say, then other the, the next two years, uh, 20 to 22, was pretty much figuring out how to make things scalable. And now we're into scale-up phase. So I would consider okay. having lived through three phases where we are currently living the third phase of these three. Okay, that's great. The scale-up phase. And then where is your company located? Are you virtual? Do you have a, a headquarters presence? Yeah, so we call ourselves a remote company and it always clashes with reality when we get physical mail and we have to pick it up from the post office and nobody does it because no one ever goes to the office. So yeah, no, we are a remote company, uh, pretty spread out through Europe. But as we still feel like we get some value out of meeting face-to-face -face every once in a while, we have like three hubs. Mm -hmm. One hub is in Vienna, where we originally started uh, from. Then we have one hub in Paris, and the third one is in Barcelona. Okay, great. Uh, all right, and you're located in Vienna, correct? Right now, I'm calling from Vienna, yeah. From Vienna, okay, perfect. And then what's your team size now for OrderLion? Yeah, we over the last six months or so, I think we scaled up from 10 to 30 people now. And that's mainly due to our regional expansion. So once we figured out how the whole process of customer acquisition, onboarding and servicing them uh, is scalable, that's when we kicked in gear and expanded to multiple markets. And therefore you also need people to speak the languages. That's the mm -hmm. thing, right? We are based here in Europe. So you deal with uh, multiple countries with their own languages and therefore Early on, you need to be able to scale up uh, that part of the business because in, in this industry, in the food supply chain, you don't get that far with English across the mm. country. So you need to okay. kind of go. Okay, interesting. And so you said 10 to 30 staff growth over the last six months. Mm -hmm. Okay, just making sure I caught that 30, right? That's great. And then anything you want to share about the scale of your company, you know, ARR size, revenue, anything you want to share there? Yeah, so we tend to give out rather ranges than mm -hmm. to, to be too specific. But we, what we did so far is we uh, raised about $7 million uh, over the last few years, uh, finished the last round just recently. Mm -hmm. We are now at a seven-digit ARR and okay. grow a little bit over 3x year over year. And what we're also quite proud of is that we already have 100% net dollar retention, which is always very important for a SaaS company. Mm -hmm. uh, we have 0% churn, also very proud of. So these are like ballpark numbers we're currently mm -hmm. at. Okay, that's great. So seven digit ARR growing 3x year over year, great retention. And then, yeah, tell us, so you've raised 7 million today and then you just raised... Uh, what a four million in a pre-series A, as it was described, yeah. and you know. So tell us, you know, 
So seven million raised, you know, just another four. And what did you see? What were those triggers or, or things that you saw that said Order Lion is ready for that next raise and we're ready for more capital to 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 deploy deploy in our business? Yeah, I think it always depends on the stage you're in, right? So in each of these three stages that we lived through, we had a different goal and we had different KPIs that we looked at. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the very beginning, when we did our MVP, we raised a little bit of, of an angel round. Mm -hmm. um, that was great because we we got good mentorship out of the investors back then. But the main goal was to validate product market fit. That mm -hmm. is this actually worth it to pour our time into. And the second goal was we already back then wanted to validate a business model. So what do we never felt like building is something where you say, oh, we monetize later. Mm -hmm. I think for us, it was always very important as we had companies before and they were self-funded. We have this inert drive of making something worthwhile that people pay from the start. Mm -hmm. And back then we measured mainly retention and daily usage. Like, mm -hmm. is this actually working? Right? But we didn't care too much about the actual revenue growth. Because like I said before, we threw out a lot of things that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And then in the, the second stage, when we raised our seed round, we considered that our calibration phase. So mm -hmm. the goal was to prepare scalable processes. So we said, okay, we figured out product market fit. That's going to be the product. That's the business model. Now let's figure out a sales process, uh, onboarding process, a service process that will allow us to bring this to multiple markets. And again, lots of things that you have to figure out that don't work, that work. So it was like finding problem solution fit in a way. Mm -hmm. And the KPIs that we measured back then is like, okay, we started to really care about MRR. And we also started to care about the month for a month growth rate. Mm -hmm. We still cared about retention and like the whole product funnel, sign up metrics and all mm -hmm. of this. And then now that we are in the scale up phase where we did our pre-series A round, our goal is to go internationally and um, therefore a couple of new KPIs that kick mm -hmm. in. So instead of measuring MR, we now talk in terms of AR. Like if you have very little revenue, it's kind of embarrassing talking in AR. There's <laughs> like zero point zero zero. Yeah. Now we do. Um, we also care about net dollar retention rate, ARPA, the average revenue per mm -hmm. account, customer acquisition costs, customer acquisition cost payback rate, sales funnel metrics, and all these things that kicked in now that we start to care about where before it was not really necessary, and. Yeah then you use all of this for the fundraiser, right? When you see that the, the metrics tell you things are going well, there is the demand for it. It grows in a way that you want to see it, that you have margins that you want to see, then you get to it and set it up to a fundraising process. I, I love that. So you characterize this, you know, in your journey, kind of that first stage, seed stage, validate product market fit, and then you moved into the scale phase and now, I'm sorry, into the calibration phase and now into that scale phase, you know, going international. So I love that, that description of your journey and what to find suppliers, what is your go-to-market motion? Is this emails, calls, 
inbound SEO? How, how are you finding your customers? Yeah, it's mainly outbound calls. Okay. This industry is not very digital. And even the decision makers have to be super involved in the business. But it's very hard to reach them via email. They just don't have the time for it. Mm -hmm. the, it's got to be a phone call. Okay. Okay. Really interesting. And just, yeah, interesting how each industry is different and how you can reach out to those. And so you've raised 7 million to date. Any lessons that you'd like to share to other SaaS founders listening, you know, during your fundraising journey that, you know, anything that you've learned or you wish you had known when you started fundraising? Yes. I think in fundraising, a lot of advice out there is correct, but at the same time wrong. And I think it is because most of the tips depend on the stage you're in. So if you get general advice, it might be completely wrong because you're in, in a different stage. Mm -hmm. I, I think a few things that might be true across all stages, despite maybe being super obvious, is I felt it helped me to approach fundraising like sales. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of sales at the other line myself and build up the sales team. So I think I had it kind of a natural way of approaching it like that so that you set it up like a funnel. You have the various stages and you try to kind of define your ideal customer profile that you only reach out to the investors that you really want to reach out. You create maybe your filters on Crunchbase based on industry sector. Mm -hmm geographic and mm -hmm. all these things. And then you do like your first outbound and then your follow-ups and so on. So approaching it like sales and mm -hmm. thinking about momentum in the funnel, the, the, the breadth of the funnel and qualifying as you go helped me quite a bit. Then each call, each email, each meeting was pretty much a sales meeting. You just don't sell the product. You mm -hmm. kind of sell the idea. Mm -hmm. And what and also helped me is that I was always very comfortable iterating on the pitch deck. So the first version going into the fundraise was quite far away from the version that in the end was being used at the latest meetings because you just get a lot of feedback, right? You go in with your own ideas, with your uh, own version of the company. You know a lot of things that others might not know. So. Mm -hmm. It helps when you when you finish a meeting, think back like where did the energy go down? Where did a lot of questions come? What was super unclear? What do I always have to explain? And where do I always feel like we, we had one question about our competition where it was always about this? Like, why how are you different? Then I was like, oh, so annoying explaining this. So I just put in a, a slide explaining how we're different, put this early on in the pitch deck, and there we went, you know. It was all clear and we, we kept the energy throughout the, the meeting. That helped a lot. Mm -hmm. oh, that's great. And, you know, you mentioned your journey, right, from product market fit to calibration to scale. And as you pitched your investors and say you went for your, say, pre-seed and seed and pre-series A, did your pitch deck change along the way as far as what you were presenting? You know, was it early on about the story and then maybe later on about your retention and metrics? Did your pitch deck deck change with each fundraise yeah very true so first of all it was less ugly over time <laughs> <laughs> the very first version was pretty ugly i have to say now looking back mm -hmm. uh 
Uh, one of our early angel investors recently sent me our very first version that I sent him back then, years back, and I was like, wow, <laughs> that, that was awful. Um, but apart from the looks, it, also the content. Yeah, in the beginning, like you have no numbers at all, right? So you pretty much pitch the idea, the market, the why now. And then over time, you keep adding numbers. And I think the last one, the pre-Series A deck, it was a lot of numbers. And from maybe no backup slides in the beginning to 30 backup slides where you can show every little detail from buyer-side retention, supplier-side retention, cohort analysts, and all of these things. So you you just create this over time, and, and therefore it gets more numbers-driven, I mm -hmm. think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. So in the beginning, more about the story, and then over time, adding metrics and numbers to support the story. Uh, yeah. So Stefan, really appreciate your time today. So as we wrap up here, what's next for the for order line? What's coming up next that's exciting? Yeah, so I think as we've seen that the customer feedback that we get is really, really great. Um, we have a lot of fun taking it international. So just recent, I think, as a matter of fact, today we announced that we were able to acquire a competitor in France and together with them, we are pushing really quickly into that market and each month grows like crazy there because we already have a team with vast market knowledge in there. Um, so for us, 2023, we called it Project Ramp. That's mm -hmm. what we think about internally. It's Project Ramp. And that stands for ramping up each market. That's what the whole company cares about and what we're excited about. That's great. And this, I think this, just one more question here. So you just acquired a competitor in France. And I think other founders are really interested, right? Because you think organic growth, just grow, grow the product line, sell more, but then also look at acquisitions. So when you looked at that acquisition, who's helping you out in the process? Like your existing investors and their guidance, you know, how, you know who helped you uh, through that acquisition process? Yeah, so I think it was one of our investors who became like a mentor over time. And then I had another investor who is quite well-versed in the legal side of things, who mm -hmm. also could help me guide uh, us through the process. But I just have to say kind of a word of caution to other founders out there. Mm -hmm. When you think about acquisitions, still rather early on, I would consider us early stage, mm -hmm. you got to know if it fits your core business model. If it doesn't and you want to expand your product lineup by the acquisition, I would be careful and think like, is my product really working? Do I really have product market fit if I need an acquisition to widen my offering? That's a problematic thing. Mm -hmm. But for us in that case, it was that this team did just exactly the same thing. They had the same vision. If you had a feature list side by side, it mm -hmm. would be like a copy. So when we got to know each other and we shared our pains, we're like, am I talking to a mirror? Like, how is this possible? And therefore it fits so well. And we could transition the customers in an instant from their platform to our platform. So we don't have two products. We just have one. And that eliminates a lot of dangers in an acquisition process. And the whole team onboarding was also super easy because for them, just the logo changed. Everything else, the vibe and the, mm -hmm. the processes is all the same. Therefore, I think it was rather easy for us to do. If it's not, I will be very careful. 
Boy, great lessons there. And we're going to go into overtime here a little bit because this is really interesting. And so acquired a competitor, same feature list, you know, same product. You, you, you know you have product market fit. You're scaling up, so it makes sense. And so which technology goes forward? Are you going to move customers from their platform to yours? Are you going to integrate the best of both worlds? What tech survives after this acquisition? Yes, yeah, so we looked at it. And in the end, we saw that our product was a little further advanced and it was already more set up for scale. And that's super important when you go to multiple countries that it's easy to add multiple languages, that it's easy to increase the load on the server, that you have like microservices and distributed systems and all these things you already had in place. Because for us from day one, we thought about going international. The reason is probably Austria is such a small market. Like we have less than 10 million people living here. So you need to do that, right? Um, and on the other hand, they had a couple of uh, features in there that were better than ours. So what we just did is we looked at, okay, what did you do well? We integrated into ours, but in general, our platform is a little bit more fit for purpose to scale up. So that's why uh, we picked ours in the end. Yeah, that's great. Love that. Love. Thanks for sharing that. And maybe, you know, have you on in a year or so, and you can tell us how that transition went, you know, with the acquisition. Uh, so Stefan, really appreciate you sharing your story today, more about Order Lion. If, if our listeners would like to learn more about your company, where should we send them online? Yeah, I think the best place is either go onto our LinkedIn account. If you put in Order Lion in the search, so it's like order, like when you order something, and lying like the animal mm -hmm. or you can go to orderline.com that's our website you can learn a little bit more about the product but i think linkedin is a nice place because okay. we share things about our work and then you get a little bit more insights into the day-to-day -day things okay well great so if you'd like to learn more about orderline check out their linkedin profile or check out orderlion l-i-o-n.com to learn more and stefan really appreciate your time and sharing your story today yeah you're welcome it was great fun Thanks a lot.